Let's open our Bibles to the book of Judges in the Old Testament. We're in chapter 6. If you're visiting, and I know many of you are, we teach through books of the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter. We're in Judges chapter 6. We're looking uh, at verses 33 through 40 this morning. Open your Bible or navigate on your device. The topic we find there, Gideon puts God to a test by asking him to manipulate the amount of dew that is on a fleece of wool each morning. And so the title of our message is, Do the Dew. So let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning as we do take a look at Gideon uh, and the, uh, the way that you've prepared him for battle, I pray that we could see ourselves in that picture and that we would uh, identify with him, Lord, but more so that we would hear from you, that your spirit would speak to our spirit and that we would know, Lord, that we've been in your presence and that you have been here, Lord, walking in the midst of, as you say, the candlestick, the church on earth, and that our hearts are touched with the, the wonder of your love and your grace and your mercy. Uh, we praise you. We thank you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. The term wardrobe malfunction came into common use when Janet Jackson was exposed during the Super Bowl 38 halftime show. Justin Timberlake, who performed with Jackson, first used the term when he issued an apology at the 2004 Grammys. It caught on and has entered pop culture to describe all manner of public clothing snafus. You don't have to be a celebrity to fall victim to a common wardrobe malfunction, whether it's your zipper or a tear or a popped button or a stain, you can be totally embarrassed. When I was a salesman, uh, I had to wear a tie every day, and uh, for some reason I was against tie clasps uh, until I kept dropping my tie into soup uh, at lunch. And uh, so then I just threw my tie over my shoulder. I'll tell you how much class I have. But anyway... I got to thinking of wardrobe because of something we read about Gideon in our text. In verse 34, we're told the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Now, this word translated came upon literally means clothed. The spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. I can't help but think of the way Iron Man's armor comes to Tony Stark and attaches itself to him, enveloping him instantly. Or maybe Johnny Storm when he simply says flame on and instantly becomes the human torch. Gideon, of course, did not wear a costume. He didn't transform. He looked the same as he always had. Clothed is simply a way to express the dynamic difference that the Holy Spirit made in his life and especially in his warfare against Israel's enemies. The Holy Spirit was the only armor he would need to defeat a coalition of enemies that numbered 135,000 men. Now, before Gideon defeated them, however, he doubted God. Clothed with the Holy Spirit and having been promised victory, he doubted and demanded a test from God. It was a kind of self-inflicted spiritual wardrobe malfunction of disbelieving his new garment was sufficient for the task at hand. Christians are described as being clothed with the Holy Spirit. In Luke 24, 49, the Lord says this. This is in the ESV. It says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus was promising the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the disciples gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. His coming upon them, that baptism with him, Jesus described as their being clothed with him. Do you believe that you are clothed with the Holy Spirit? 
Or like Gideon, do you disbelieve you are? I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, believe you are clothed with the Holy Spirit and you will defeat your enemies. Or number two, disbelieve you are clothed with the Holy Spirit and you will delay your victory. Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 33 through 35 about believing our clothing. Now, in most fantasy or sci-fi tales, there's a weapon that when wielded by the hero strikes terror into the heart of the enemy. In the Lord of the Rings, it was the sword Anduril, reforged by the elves from the shards of Narsal. The dark lord Sauron feared it in the hands of Aragorn, Aragorn, the rightful king. More recently in the movies, it's Mjolnir, Thor's hammer, which can only be lifted by a worthy hero. In Gideon's case, he was the weapon to be wielded by God, the Holy Spirit. And the same is true of us. We're told to put on the whole armor of God. Here's the passage from Ephesians 6. You're obviously aware of it, but it's worth repeating. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, we're told to put on this armor, but if you think about it for a moment, it's really something that Jesus has to clothe us with. It's the clothing of every believer so we can withstand the spiritual warfare that surrounds us. I don't have a helmet and a breastplate backstage. I'm wearing them right now, or at least I should be, if I believe that God the Holy Spirit clothes me in his power. I put it on by believing I've been clothed. And and there's a sense in which when I'm in this metaphor, looking at myself as a soldier, that I am never to be unclothed. Uh, I should never think of a time that, well, now I'm on duty as a Christian. And so therefore I need to make sure I've put on all of this equipment. And then there's a second layer of it where I think, well, I have faith, but it's not very much faith. So I guess the fiery darts of the evil one are going to penetrate. God is telling us in this passage, I have clothed you with spiritual armor and it's pretty fantastic. You just need to believe that it's true. That makes me his weapon. That makes you his weapon by virtue of having been born again and baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so let's take a look at Gideon. He was now good to go against Israel's enemies. Verse 33, then all the Midianites, the Amalekites, the people of the east gathered together and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. Now, when we first met Gideon, he was threshing grain in a hiding place and that told us it was harvest time. Israel was being oppressed by these nomadic enemies who came every year at harvest time. They stole their crops while their livestock devoured all of the grazing land. So the Israelites worked hard all year to put in their crops and to uh, get good grazing land. And then all of a sudden these enemies would come and they would take advantage of that. And there was no resistance by Israel because God was judging them for their sin. A portion of this ground was a valley, but for the most part, it's a plain. It's from 15 to 20 miles long and about 12 miles wide from north to south. It's an extremely fertile area. 
And so Israel's enemies made their camp there thinking to steal and plunder as they'd done for seven previous seasons. Now, I've often mentioned to you that our spiritual enemies are super intelligent and they're always plotting new, complicated, satanic strategies against us. Things that they're going to spring on you a year from now, 20 years from now, if the Lord should tarry, that are just uh, diabolical and malevolent. At the same time, uh, they often attack us the same way over and over again. Because if something is working for them, why abandon it? And so it's like a one-two punch. They, they attack you where you're weak, and they're planning other strategies against you. So is there something in your life that you can't seem to defeat? The truth is you can defeat it because you are clothed with the Holy Spirit. It might be something you can walk away from once and for all if you really wanted to. Or it might be something you're going to battle with all your life. Either way, the victory is already yours. I mean, what does the devil have that can overcome the army of God that you are, or the armor of God that you are clothed with? If you put it that way in your own mind, what can the devil do if you have the armor of God? You're, he can't defeat you. Smog, the dragon in The Hobbit, had a weak spot in his armored skin that eventually led to his death when Bard the bowman shot him with an arrow. And it's true, our enemy is said to have fiery darts that he shoots at us. We read about that this morning. But since our armor is from God, it has no weak spots. Now, I might think that the shield of faith, like I said, is insufficient because I have insufficient faith. But God hasn't given me my insufficient faith. He's given me his shield of faith that can repel all the fiery darts of the enemy. The truth is, if you and I didn't believe that we could go out every day and have victory, uh, we wouldn't go out every day. But sometimes we let our minds play tricks on us and we think that, well, if I was just a better Christian, if I just could earn a little bit more of this weaponry, then I would be better off. And God is here today telling us, this is how I've clothed you for victory. Verse 34, but the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. We're going to learn in chapter 8, as I mentioned, that the enemy numbered 135,000. They would be met in battle by one spirit-clothed believer and a unique strategy that God would designate for him to bring victory. If you're a Christian, the odds against you are always absolutely overwhelming. Just looking at the odds, you have no chance of survival let alone victory. Yet simultaneously, we declare, as Paul did in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Elijah, the great Old Testament prophet, once faced off against 450 to 1 odds. 450 prophets of Baal versus the one prophet of God. Clothed with the Spirit, he prevailed, killing them all after shaming their so-called God. Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were at odds with King Nebuchadnezzar when they refused to bow down to his image. The entire might of the world-ruling Babylonian Empire sought to crush them. It wasn't just them versus Nebuchadnezzar, which was bad enough. He represented the most powerful empire in the world at that time. The entire government was against them. They defeated the king and his government, spending a leisurely afternoon strolling with Jesus in a burning, fiery furnace that ought to have incinerated them. 
clothed as they were with the Holy Spirit, their actual clothing didn't even smell like smoke when they emerged. Your victory as a spirit-clothed believer might go a different way, but that's okay too. You could be like Stephen, the church's first martyr, whose face shone like that of an angel as he was being accused and who saw heaven open as he was being killed. You might, and I quote, have trials of mockings and scourgings and of chains and imprisonments. You might be stones, sawn in two, tempted, slain with the sword, destitute, afflicted, and tormented. But if that's the case, you enter into glory victorious over not just earthly and supernatural enemies, but over death and hell. Do you realize as a Christian, because of Jesus Christ, because you're in Christ, you have defeated death. Science is trying to defeat death by putting it off farther and farther, figuring out ways that you can live longer and longer. They're coming up with crazy ideas, soul transplants, head transplants, uh, brain transplants. No, no, I, you laugh, but you know, there's Victor Frankenstein guys that are working on this kind of stuff. Their idea of living longer is to, is to have the same crummy life that we live only for a longer period of time. All the religions of the world and the philosophies of the world are trying to solve the problem of death. But you know who solved it? Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead and said, I am the first fruits of all those who will follow me in salvation. You have defeated death. Death is no enemy. We laugh at death. And hell? Hell is quite an enemy. It's an, uh, a superior enemy. But we don't have to worry about that because we're on our way to heaven. Verse 34, the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew the trumpet and the Abizarites gathered behind him and he sent messengers throughout all of Manasseh who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun and Naphtali and they all came to meet uh, and they came up to meet them rather. Ten minutes ago, the Abizarites and Ophrah wanted to murder Gideon because he tore down the altar to Baal and burned its idol. Now they rally behind him to face overwhelming odds. And so do Israelites from several other tribes. What an incredible difference the Holy Spirit made. Remember, no one could see that Gideon was clothed with the Spirit. He didn't have his superhero outfit on. It isn't like they discovered his secret identity and realized a superhero had been living in their midst all along. This was simply the spiritual influence of being clothed with the Spirit. Don't underestimate your influence where you live, where you work, where you play. It may seem like nothing's happening, but if you're a Christian and you're living out Christian principles and virtues, uh, you are having an effect. You are making a difference. If nothing else, you are restraining evil because the Bible tells us in Thessalonians that the Holy Spirit filled church holds back evil. And you think, well, he's not doing a very good job from what I can tell. Imagine how bad it's going to be when we're going, uh, gone. rather. And so think of your influence as a Christian. Now let's talk about the trumpet blast. One historian said this, For the Israelite, the sound of the trumpet was associated not more with war than it was with religion. When the fathers were journeying through the wilderness, the sound of the silver trumpets blown by the priests was a signal for their marches and for their convocations. The advent of the new year was celebrated by the Feast of Trumpets, also days of gladness, solemn days in the beginnings of months. The majesty of the law was attested by the voice of the trumpet. The walls of Jericho fell flat when on that seventh day the trumpets of ram's horn were blown by the priests. And the Midianites themselves, when two centuries before they had troubled Israel, had been dispersed at the sound of the trumpet. 
For years, the trumpet had been silent in Israel. God's ordinances and his Sabbaths had been disregarded. The memories of Sinai and Jericho had slumbered. The orgies of Baal had usurped the place of the holy convocations. And now that its sound was heard once more, it spoke to the people of him whose covenant they had long forgotten, but whom at last they had invoked in their anguish. And so this trumpet blast brought back to them all of this uh, lost history, all of this remembrance. Sometimes it's just something simple in our lives. If you feel like you've wandered from the Lord, uh, get back into prayer, get back into reading his word, start coming to church, and you will see a massive difference in your understanding of the influence of the Spirit in your life. Now, I think we would all agree that Gideon's clothing wasn't something he earned or deserved. True, he had been obedient in destroying the idols in his household, but there's no sense that his obedience earned him this clothing. And in a moment, we're going to see that he doubted God, which clearly, if you think he's earning something, would be taken away from him. There's a famous saying, the Holy Spirit can only fill, or in this case, clothe a holy vessel. The Holy Spirit can only fill a holy vessel. That wasn't true of Gideon, and it's not true of you. If it were, no one could ever be clothed by him because practically speaking, we're never holy until we are free from our mortal bodies and take residence in our immortal bodies. We are, however, once and for all set apart and we are positionally holy by virtue of being saved. We're baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ and he comes to take residence within us. We therefore can believe at any moment that we are clothed with the Holy Spirit. I admit it, and you know this, I like the Marvel Universe of superhero films. Uh, I just get a kick out of it. In Doctor Strange, the hero is fighting the bad guys, and he picks up an ancient weapon. But it's funny because he doesn't know what to do with it, and it's useless. I'm clothed with the armor of God, but it doesn't mean I'm using the armor properly or that I utilize it at all. Lots of Christian marriages are in trouble. The stats aren't nearly as bad as the secular world would like you to believe, but divorce among professing Christians is simply too prevalent. And I want to qualify this by saying it's divorce without biblical grounds that I'm talking about. How could that be, however, if both a husband and wife are girded with truth, wielding the sword of the spirit? The truth of God's word would cancel out any carnal thoughts that divorce should even be considered, let alone pursued. And so this is how this works. It's very, very simple. If I have the weapon of truth, when I start looking at my marriage and whatever problems that it has, I can't really entertain the idea of a non-biblical divorce because that is false. And I'm in truth. And so I listen to God and I go God's way. Apparently, a lot of believers are taking off their armor or they don't know what it's used for or they don't want to utilize it. It must be we don't believe we are spirit clothed and simultaneously that we're willing to grieve and quench the Holy Spirit in order to follow our own will rather than God's will. I've had too many people in my office going through a non-biblical divorce who know exactly what God says about marriage and just reject it out of hand because they want to go their own way and and obviously not wearing the armor of God. And so this becomes very practical. I was listening to A.W. Tozier the other day. He was reading an audible book 
And uh, it's his book on the Holy Spirit. And I'm listening for all these incredible insights. You know, he's one of the great Christian minds of our century. And I'm listening. And, and finally, it all boiled down to this phrase that he, he used. He said, we don't have more of the Holy Spirit because we don't want more of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, that can be true. And when I talk to some of these individuals, of course, true of my own life as well, but I'll use somebody else as an example. Uh, when I talk to these couples that are contemplating divorce without biblical grounds, they don't want God to intervene in their life. They don't want to go God's way. They want to go their way. They could have more of the Spirit. Nobody can sit there and say, I just simply cannot get more of the gene. If I could get more of the Spirit, I would. Because in a minute, you'll see that all you have to do is ask for the Holy Spirit and God's promise to give it because he's a giver of good gifts and a great father. It's because we don't want him. And I would guess that in many of our struggles against sin, it's because we really don't want to give up our sin at some level. You need to believe you're clothed with the Holy Spirit and you'll defeat the lies and the fears and the deceptions that arise from your own flesh and from the world and from the devil. Luke 24, 49 I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. This clothing Jesus spoke about came in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. It continues throughout the church age. It is the promise of the father. It is a gift that you are spirit clothed. If you think there is something you need to do in order to receive this gift, do what Jesus said in Luke eleven thirteen. He said, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He's talking to Christians about believing that they can have as much of the Holy Spirit as they desire. Ask and you shall receive, believe you are spirit clothed and stand against the enemy and you will defy overwhelming odds. Verses 36 through 40, disbelieve and you'll delay your victory. You remember it. Tom Cruise was maverick. Val Kilmer was Iceman. Iceman was in trouble in a dogfight outnumbered by the Russian MiGs. Maverick hesitates to engage. Then he hesitates some more. Then he hesitates some more. He keeps on hesitating for what seems like forever until he finally gets his head back in the game and gets in the dogfight. Then it was hero time in Top Gun. Well, it was hero time for Gideon to get in the fight, but he too hesitated. Verse 36, so Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, if, wow, this is bold in a bad way. He's challenging God's power. Why do we doubt the power and the promises of God? Well, one reason is that he has a roundabout way of keeping them. And I say that with all faith and out of love. God has a roundabout way of keeping his promises to you because he has a lot more to teach you than just that his promises are true. You have to know that they're true. And one reason he has a roundabout way is that we see his faithfulness in our sufferings and we see his strength in our weakness and we hear his still small voice in the storm. But it is during those sufferings and in that weakness and in that storm that we tend to doubt his promises, the very promises he is working hard to get us to see. Bad things happen to good people and they happen to God's people. We're called upon to endure, believing all things are working together for the good, for those who love the Lord. In those moments, human doubt creeps in and we have to work through that. Back in verse 17, Gideon had asked, show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. 
The angel of the Lord had already proven himself to Gideon by consuming a sacrifice that Gideon brought. If you were here for that study, he said, hey, how do I know it's you? And the Lord had proven it to him. Often in the Psalms, the writers will rehearse God's mighty works on Israel's behalf. We've seen that in the book of Judges so far. Without living in the past, we ought to rehearse God's mighty works for us on our behalf. Gideon had already seen God's mighty works, and he should have just thought about that and gone forward from that springboard. Now, you might say, there are no mighty works of God in my life. Well, how about him saving you from sin and death and hell? How about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Sometimes, I don't think we do it on purpose. I'm not saying this to rebuke us, but sometimes we take for granted salvation. You know, it's not easy for God to save lost human beings. He created a universe and put men in it that had free will. That could say no to him and could go their own selfish way. And even though they did, he had a plan of salvation, a way of redemption that is glorious and marvelous. You see it played out in human history as Jesus Christ came through Israel, died on the cross, rose from the dead and is coming again. And for that salvation to come to you, a hell-doomed sinner, that's an amazing thing. That's an incredible thing. And then to be filled with the Holy Spirit on top of that. If you had nothing else, that would be enough to show you the faithfulness and the wonder and the power of God. But as you dwell upon that, I think you can see other things that the Lord has done for you if you're a Christian. Things that he has gone before you and taken care of. uh, The way he's guided and directed your life. And so rehearse those things When you have your times of doubt. God's past faithfulness ought to be more than sufficient for us to trust him. Verse 37. Look, I shall put out a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece only and it's dry on all the ground, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. A fleece of wool is sheared in a continuous piece and is usually folded and then tied up. Sounds like it was the first thing Gideon saw lying around and he concocted a test using it. The amazing thing is that the Lord allowed Gideon to test him. How patient his love for us to endure doubt when all around us we see his love and power on our behalf. It's a good thing God doesn't send angels to us more often. Because when you doubt angels, they get angry in a righteous sort of way. And they tend to do things to you. John the Baptist's father doubted the angel when he came and told him that they were going to have a son. And he said, oh, I can prove that you're going to have a son. You're going to be mute until that child is born. Mm-hmm. Couldn't utter a sound. God doesn't do that. That's, you know, angels, they're, they're, they have a short fuse. But God is extremely patient with Gideon. And it was so. Verse 38, when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water indicating it was a greater amount than he expected. God not only submitted to being tested, he went beyond the test and loaded that fleece with the morning dew. It was soaked. could be no doubt that he answered, except that Gideon did doubt. Verse 39, then Gideon said to God, do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And by the way, there's so many nuances in here we could talk about for for Gideon to say to God, don't be angry with me. How rude. As if God had ever been angry with him, as if I mean, it's, it's a way of saying, you know, in the past, you've been so 
you know, overbearing and weird. So, you know, let me let me be able to ask you something and you not go off on me. God had given him no reason to say this. I think a lot of times we project onto God things that he hasn't really done to us. And so Gideon, it's an, it, the more I get into this, the more amazing God's mercy and grace uh, present themselves. Now, remember, all this was happening after an army of Israelites had rallied to Gideon's trumpet blast. That's quite a sign by itself, is it not? The guys that wanted to kill you, now you blow a trumpet and thousands and thousands of them come from all the tribes of Israel. I mean, that's a miracle. Here was Gideon burning two whole nights, fleecing God, hesitating. Now, in Gideon's case, God allowed for the delay, but sometimes timing won't allow for one. If God has given you a task to do, do it. Don't hesitate, or in some cases, the opportunity might pass and be lost. Verse 40, and God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. Do you wonder if Gideon was thrilled or disappointed? I mean, did he see that second night and say, yeah, let's go. Let's tear those guys down. Or did he think, I'm out of options now. There's either water on the fleece or not on the fleece. I can't think of another fleece thing. And so I guess I'm going to have to go forward. I see him in the second category more as an Eeyore kind of character than a Tigger. Uh, but at any rate, God had passed the test and Gideon must go forward. And he will in the next chapter. Now, this episode has given rise among Christians to the phrase putting out a fleece before God. The thinking behind it is, if I don't know God's will, I should look for him to do or say something unusual to show me his will. Lord, if you want me to go on that missions trip uh, to Colombia, have a Colombian national knock on my door today and ask me for directions. And then I'll know that you want me to go. And I, I've heard, I'm making that up, but it's not the weirdest one I've ever heard. Gideon knew God's will. When you approach this, you have to understand Gideon knew God's will. He wasn't asking for God's will. He was asking God to perform a miracle on his behalf. He said, God, I know your will. You're sending me out against these people. I need to know you're powerful enough to back me on my play here. And so I need you to do a miracle and let's use this fleece to do it. So we should drop putting out a fleece from our vocabulary. We should never say... You know, if somebody says, oh, what are you doing about it? Oh, I put out a fleece. You know, I'm waiting for God. Still waiting for that Colombian national to knock on my door. <laughs> Evidently, I'm not called to Colombia. In terms of God revealing his will to us, I don't have a problem with him communicating to us through what seems to be coincidence to us because there are no coincidences. Over the years, a lot of believers have told me that as they were praying to understand God's will or determine God's will, a certain scripture would keep coming up. They'd read it in their morning or evening devotions. Then they'd hear it multiple times on Christian radio. Then it would be taught in church or at Bible study. And they just see it all over so much so that God is saying, hey, are you seeing this? This is the answer. And sometimes in counseling people and they're asking about God's will, I'll ask, hey, what has God been showing you in his word? Why? This one scripture I keep seeing everywhere. Well, what is it? And it's it's the answer. But we miss it sometimes. So I don't have a problem with God doing that. I wouldn't base your entire decision on what we see as coincidences. Sometimes when your car won't start, it's because you left your battery, your battery run down because your lights were on, not because God is trying to get your attention. And so we need to be careful about 
how we interpret those things. But this is like apples and oranges. Gideon was not asking God's will. He knew it. He was flat out wanting God to perform a miracle. There's some interesting symbolism in Gideon's test. I'm certain that he didn't understand it, but it's there for us to ponder. In ancient times, clothing was made of wool, linen, and silk. Wool was the most common since it was the cheapest. Then you would have wool, linen blends, and then linen, and then finally expensive silk. And by the way, as a, as a rabbit trail this morning, uh, sometimes you'll read in the Old Testament that the Jews were not to wear clothing that was blended. They couldn't wear wool, linen, blended clothing. People are always trying to interpret what God intended by that. So, sort of like some of the dietary laws, certain hooved animals and certain insects that couldn't be eaten. It wasn't because God was a nutritionist and telling people how to eat. All of those were simply to set Israel apart from the other nations. And so there's nothing wrong with wearing a garment of mixed fibers. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. But on a moral ceremonial level, it's one of the things that Jews did that set them apart from other peoples so that people knew that God was dealing with them. This can be important to you because there's some passages that people will hit you with and they'll say, hey, right here in Leviticus, it says, don't do this. Well, a couple of verses earlier, it says, don't wear blended clothing. So what I'll do with people who I'm comfortable touching uh, is say, hey, do you mind if I look at your clothing tag? And I'll look at their tag, and if it's a blended material, I'll say, you're anathema to me. God says not to wear blended clothing, and there you are. You need to burn that right now. And they'll say, well, of course, that's silly. Why is that silly? But what I, you're telling me isn't silly. And so it's, you, you, you can't do part of the law. You're either going to keep the whole law or you're not going to keep the whole law. You can't pick and choose what makes sense to you. Back to Gideon. A fleece of wool represented the basic element of physical human clothing. Bible commentators, both ancient and modern, see do as an emblem of the Holy Spirit. It is a physical representation of him, just like wind or fire. Gideon's test, when viewed symbolically, involved the Holy Spirit saturating clothing. It was a visible manifestation of the invisible spirit. In both tests, God sent the spirit. The spirit is, is his to send. It's his to give. And he desires to do so in abundance. In one case, it was only on the ground, not on the fleece, which represents our clothing. I think it's communicating that the spirit is available to us in an amount that can soak us, that can be wrung out of us. Uh, it's similar to when Jesus said the spirit in, his, in your life would be like rivers of living water. And so the idea here is that what God is showing us, I, I, again, I don't think Gideon understood the depth of it, was that I am ready to soak you with the Holy Spirit. In fact, in your case, Gideon, I have soaked you with the spirit. Or you can continue to doubt me and be dry and not have this power. Disbelief only causes delays. God has begun a good work. If you're a Christian, God has begun his good work in you, and he will be faithful to complete it. But if you disbelieve him along the way, his progress in that work is going to be delayed. The Bible indicates that after you're saved, God has good works for you to discover as you walk with him. But if you disbelieve him, it will hinder you from discovering those good works. Clothing is a powerful illustration in the Bible. Your salvation is compared to clothing. Human beings in their natural state are depicted as being dressed in filthy rags that are unacceptable attire in heaven. You can't get into heaven dressed in your natural state. 
Jesus, by his death on the cross, confers a robe of righteousness to the believing sinner while he takes upon himself their filthy robes. And so that's a way that the Bible portrays salvation. You're filthy with these filthy garments. Jesus says, let me wear those for you on the cross and you take my white robe of righteousness. And when you believe that I'm your savior, you will be accepted into heaven. Robed in his righteousness, the Lord sees you, uh, sees him in you. And beyond that, we've seen twice from the Gospel of Luke that you're clothed by the Holy Spirit. His coming upon you, either when you are saved or subsequent to it, is a gift of a spiritual garment. One form that garment takes, we've seen this morning, is the armor of God. I'm saying that you don't put it on in times of need because you always need it. You know, I, I work with, the, with law enforcement, with police officers in the city of Lemoore as a chaplain. And those guys come to work dressed. They've got all of their gear on and they're ready to go. But they don't wear it 24 hours a day. They don't wear it when they're asleep. They're on duty. But you as a Christian, you know you're always on duty as the soldier of the Lord. You never go home and take off your armor. It's something that has to be on you at all times because your enemy is not a gentleman. He doesn't just get you when you're on duty. You can't say, hey, when I'm at work, I need to be left alone to concentrate on my work. You guys can attack me on the way home while I'm listening to Christian radio. No, we need to be clothed at all times. Do you think you deserved or could ever deserve the robe of righteousness that symbolizes your salvation? All of you would say, of course not. That's a gift. Likewise, you cannot deserve being spirit clothed. Something God does that you are to receive and to go on receiving by asking your heavenly father for his good gift. I think we err when we think God saved me and gave me a robe for free, but now I have to earn and deserve his power in my life. And I keep falling short. And if you start to believe that, you will always fall short of victory in areas that uh, you want to fall short in and in others that you want to have victory in. Here's an easier way of understanding all of this. Look at Gideon. Would you say that Gideon deserved the Holy Spirit? Did he make himself a holy vessel fit to be filled by God? Absolutely not. God clothed a very doubtful Gideon by grace. Gideon is a guy you and I wouldn't have chosen as a hero. Not in a million years. If Gideon was your pastor, you'd go to a different church. If he was on your board, you'd find a different church. I mean, Gideon is not a guy that you would invest much uh, confidence in. And yet God said, mighty warrior. Why? Because he clothed him with the Holy Spirit. And that's what he does for us. I'll close with this. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things?